Man, I am pumped to be here. I'm the new guy. My name's Andrew. Hope I've had uh, the chance to meet you. If not, I'd love to meet you after service. Man, it has been a whirlwind for my family and I ever since getting out here to Texas. We, uh, let's see, we wrapped up school on a Thursday. We finished up everything on a Friday, packing up. We got here to Texas on a Saturday, went to church on Sunday, started VBS on Monday. And from there, it's just been off to the races and we have been having such a fantastic time. I've got to meet so many of you. And uh, thank you for your prayers, by the way. So many people have come up saying, hey, we're praying for you and your family as you're going through this transition. I can't tell you what that does for us, what that means to us. You've so welcomed us into your church family. Thank you. We are having an awesome time. Uh, a couple weeks ago, I was in Breckenridge, got to be a part of everything going on with our high school camp. God moved there, an amazing time up in the mountains. And in a few weeks, we'll be going out to our camp for our elementary kids, for our middle schoolers. My kids are gonna be there. My wife and I are gonna be there. And if you've got a middle schooler or an upper elementary age child, we'd love for them to be there too. You can sign up in the QR that's in front of the seat back right there. And uh, here's the deal. If, if finances are an issue, we want to take that issue off of you. We have, uh, we've got some sponsorships available. We don't want finances to be an obstacle. We'd love for your child to be at camp here in a few weeks. I am learning very quickly that summers are a big, big deal at Lake Hills Church, and uh, we're all about it. We love it so much. But I'm pumped about today. I'm excited to be able to open up the Word of God to share something with you today. We have been in a series lately as a church called The God of Power. What we're doing is we're looking at a specific section of Scripture in the book of Psalms. These are called the Psalms of Ascent. This is a collection of songs that would have been sung by faithful Israelites about three times a year as they traveled up to Jerusalem for the most holy uh, festivals. And these are songs that Jesus likely would have sung ever since he was a young child and then even throughout his ministry as he himself would have made the pilgrimage to Jerusalem. And the psalm that we're gonna be focusing on today is Psalm 127. If you've got your Bibles, you can flip there. If not, we've got it up here on the screens for you. Here's our text today. Psalm 127, verse one and two, it says, unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the guards stand watch in vain. In vain you raise up early, and you stay up late toiling for food to eat, for he grants sleep to those he loves. Let's pray, and we'll talk about this. Father in heaven, we love you, and we thank you for your goodness and your kindness. Lord, thank you that we get to be here. We get to be gathered together as your church this morning. We pray that you would speak to us today. Speak through me. We open our eyes, we open our ears, we open our hearts to receive from you. And it's in Jesus' name that everyone said, amen. Today we're talking about the power of work, specifically, the power of work. Before we talk about the power of work, though, we've gotta talk about the problem with work. How many of you know work can be a problem? When I was, let's see, it would have been in the summer between my eighth and ninth grade year is when I got my very first like legit job. Uh, this is not just like mowing the lawns or lemonade stand, but like time card, like old school punching it in the machine 
work. I got my first job. My dad worked at the church that I had grown up in. He oversaw facilities, and we had a Christian school there, and it basically it needed to be painted over the course of summer, and he didn't want to do it, so he recruited me to do that, which is not a bad first job, is, hey, these walls are already white. They got some smudges. Here's the same white paint. A 14-year-old can't mask that up too bad. And so that's what I was doing a lot that summer, and man, I was pumped to get going. I had like a, like a church like uniform. Although I didn't actually need a uniform, I just wanted it. I wanted to look the part. They didn't want to like take the like person's name off the stitching who it previously belonged to, so I just put a piece of tape over it and wrote my name on there. I was a little excited to be a part of the whole process. And although I don't remember everything on my first day, it's not true, I, I do remember one part. I did break a toilet. That, that's one thing I for sure did. I think it was one of those deals where it was like, hey, I've got my boy here, you need anything done? It's like, yeah, uh, can you move stuff from that corner to this corner? And in the process, I broke a toilet. I do remember that part. <laughs> but I also remember the feeling of getting in the car with my dad at about 5 p.m. that day after I had clocked out from work and feeling just immense satisfaction, like I did it. I'm a man. I worked for a full eight hours today. But this level of just joy of, man, I got to contribute something. I did break a toilet, but I contribute other things in the process. Just that feeling of satisfaction of putting in a full day's work was amazing. The other thing that I felt was exhaustion. I was so tired after that day. I had, had, had football practice uh, before that. I got showered up after practice, then went into work. And so when I got home, I was dead tired. I ate dinner. I got in bed probably at 6.30 just to wake up the next morning and do it again. But something happened. Over the course of the next couple days, next couple weeks, my excitement, my cheery disposition at work slowly started to degrade. <laughs> It, it eroded down. Part of that was due to getting a paycheck back and discovering this thing called income tax uh, being taken out of my check. And then the other part was work just kind of became work. It was all of a sudden just something that I kind of had to do. And I think for a lot of us, that phrase, work is just work, can sum up the problem that a lot of us approach when we come to work. It's just kind of what we do. If we had the option to do it or not, we'd probably choose to not do it, but it's just a means to an end. I've got a family, I've gotta take care of them, and if you're like 14-year-old me, I'm hoping to have a couple extra dollars in my pocket to go to the movies on a Friday night afterwards. But we want something more than that, don't we? But this is the, the monotonous nature of work uh, is always there to remind us that work is never really done. Has that been your experience with work? Maybe you wrap up a project, maybe you go home a little bit early on Friday, you've got some work wrapped up, but there's always more the next day. Or right now it's vacation season, and if you're like me, you spend a couple weeks prepping in anticipation, trying to wrap everything up so you can legit unplug on vacation, only to come back a week later and find a pile of work just waiting for you, and you're asking yourself the question is, is it really worth it to take this time off if I'm coming back to all of this? Work is never done. And moms, I think you know this better than just about anybody. Because what mother has there ever been that has looked at their four-year-old child and said, you're complete, my child. 
everything that I ever wanted you to be has now been done. In fact, I'm just gonna take off. We're just gonna go to the swimming pool every day. Um, you, you clean your room, you do great. Your hygiene is fantastic. You're reading so fluently, you're so respectful. We'll just take the next couple years off and we'll start again. If that's how you parent and you've accomplished that, talk to me, because we've got some parent workshops that I would love for you to teach. But that's not our experience, is it? Because there's always more work to be done. There's more clothes to wash, more dishes to do, more errands to run, more bills to pay, more meetings to have, more creative problem solving to do. There's more, more, more. The book of Ecclesiastes in scripture talks about this. And the book of Ecclesiastes is a really interesting book. It's a part of the wisdom section of the Old Testament. And the voice of Ecclesiastes is a little bit different than, say, Proverbs. Proverbs, the voice uh, of of the, the author there is a little bit more excited and chipper, but it almost appears that the voice of the narrator in Ecclesiastes is a little bit jaded by life, like they've seen some stuff by now. And so you have the narrator voice in the book of Ecclesiastes, and then you have the voice of the teacher. And the teacher says that he has done all sorts of different quests to find meaning and satisfaction in life. And one of these quests that he took up was sinking himself deep into work, into vocation, to find meaning in life after that. And after this giant experiment, Here's how he sums up his experience in Ecclesiastes chapter two. So I hated life (laughs) because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. All of it is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. I hated all the things that I had toiled for under the sun because I must leave them to one who comes after me. I can't take him with me. And who knows whether that person will be wise or foolish. This too is meaningless and a great misfortune. What do people get for all the toil and anxious striving for which they labor under the sun? And he leaves it as an open-ended question. Isn't that depressing? (laughs) Are you glad you came to church to be uplifted today by, by scripture? But doesn't this give voice to what we feel oftentimes when it comes to work? We ask ourselves a question, what is the purpose of all of this? Like, like really, like I know I'm taking care of my family, but day in and day out, the stress, the toil, the energy, the coming home exhausted, what's really the point of it all? Have you ever asked yourself that question like the author of Ecclesiastes did? We long for work to have a deeper meaning, don't we? We think that it has to have a deeper meaning. There has to be something more than just we work and we work and we work and then we retire and then we're gone and then another generation just takes it over. Doesn't there have to be something more to work than just trying to make ends meet? In his article in Big Think on the AI revolution, uh, there's an, an amazing article written by Marcel, Marcelo Glacier. I'm from Oklahoma, I can't pronounce your last name, sorry, Marcelo. Um, 
But he is talking about what AI could do, all the benefits that it could bring and some of the dangers that it could bring to if we look to AI as this way to, for us as a species, just be able to disconnect from work and just kick back and relax. He cautions against that. Here's what he says. Work as essential, or work is essential personal expression. He says, we are organizers, we are builders, we are tinkerers. The expectation that technology would buy us more leisure time and in doing so make us feel freer misunderstands our nature. It confuses freedom with not working. The premise seems wrong because work does bring a measure of enjoyment to many people. The value of work goes beyond the paycheck. When routine work is not fulfilling, we find hobbies, we join volunteer groups, we engage in activities that keep us busy while bringing a measure of enjoyment. And isn't that our experience? If we're not able to find satisfaction in our work, then we'll find other activities to try to fill that void that is lacking in our vocation. He's saying that work and this need, this drive to make something from work is woven into the fabric of our DNA. It is pro programmed in us. And so for, for some of us, the problem with work is that work is just work, but there's another group of us, and maybe we go back and forth, but you may find yourself in this category where work isn't just work, but work is everything. Work is all-consuming. Work itself is the means to an end. And I've got to be careful because this is the category that I can easily default into because I love accomplishments. I love competing, I love creating, I like love working, I love leading, I love encouraging people. I love so many of the aspects about work. And, and some of that, I'm so thankful that I have that and I'm thankful to my parents for instilling this in me, like I'm instilling in my kids, like I'm sure was instilled into you. Let's just do like a, a fill in the blank if, uh, if you know what this is. We tell our kids, hey, study so that you can make good grades. And you want good grades so that you can get into a good college, yeah. And you want to go to a good college so that you can one day get a good job. And you want to have a good job so you can make lots of money. And you want lots of money so you can, yeah, I don't know, I don't know. You just want lots of, lots of money. And, and therein lies some of the problem. It's the solution and the problem, isn't it? It's because we do need money to make this whole train move. We wanna take care of our families. But money can only go so far, can't it? Once you have your needs met, then you start working on some of your preferences, some of your wants. And when you're at that place, your career's been good to you, you've been good to it, you've worked hard, Money isn't so much the primary goal anymore. This is where work itself becomes more of the goal. It's the competing. It's the accomplishments. It's the making a name for yourself. Building a reputation becomes more of the end goal, doesn't it? And that we have this tendency when things are going well to keep our foot pressed down on the pedal of our career, to keep going, to keep striving, to keep working. But if we're honest and we would back up and say, wait, what is actually the point of me just going and going and going? 
there's this problem that we can drift into called enmeshment if we're not careful. And you've likely heard of unhealthy relationships where people become enmeshed with each other. But this is more and more a crisis, if you will, that's going on with professionals to where you be, we become enmeshed with our vocation, with our career. There was a great article in Harvard Business Review. Uh, check out this quote. This lady, she's, uh, she helps people in enmeshment situations. She says, psychologists use the term enmeshment to describe a situation where the boundaries between people become blurred and individual identities lose importance. Enmeshment prevents the development of a stable, independent sense of self. Dan, who's her focus per subject for this article, Dan, like many high pressure or like many in high pressure jobs, had become enmeshed not with another person, but with his career, a particular confluence of high achievement, intense competitiveness, and a culture of overwork has caught many in a perfect storm of career enmeshment and burnout. Over the years, we've found that these issues interact in such complex ways with people's identity, personality, and emotions, it often requires full-on psychological therapy to address them successfully. Does it sound like an issue? It is. And here's the problem with this is this doesn't hit all professionals equally. The higher your level of education, the more degrees you have or the more advanced degrees you have for more prestigious universities, the higher the chance of you finding yourself enmeshed with your career becomes. Similar, the more success you see in your career, the higher the chances are that you'll find yourself enmeshed. She goes on. Even for those who don't burn out, constructing one's identity closely around a career is a risky move. Companies and entire industries struggle and go under. Age discrimination can make it especially difficult for those in their mid to late stages of their career to find a suitable role in their field after a layoff. No matter how it happens, becoming disconnected from a career that forms the foundation of your identity can lead to bigger issues such as depression, anxiety, substance abuse, and loneliness. How many stories have we read of the CEO, the COO falling into extreme depression or suicide when the company starts to go bad? How many professional uh, uh, musicians and actors and celebrities, when their career starts to wane, find themselves in a spiral, but it's not just for those in those positions. This is something that we all have to watch out for, is allowing our career to accidentally intersect with our own identity, our own self-worth. And it, first, it doesn't seem like it's a problem, at least if the career is going well. Because if everything is up and to the right, then you're happy. Everything is great. Everybody loves you. You're the hero. But when it starts to take a dip, when the market takes a turn and you can't control it, what identity do you have 
to grab onto because the career goes down, you go down because it's not going right. There's something wrong with you and we can find ourselves in an identity crisis if we're not extremely careful with this. And often the people that suffer, it's not just us individually, but it's our families, it's our kids because we're trying to control something that ultimately we can't fully control And those that we love the most around us are the ones that suffer at it. But there's a deeper underlying problem with both of these views, that work is just work or work is everything. And the deeper view, Scripture would say, is that God is often absent from our work. Let's take a look again at the passage of Scripture we read earlier, Psalm 127. Unless the Lord builds the house, hey, builder, if God's not with you, if God's not a part of this project with you, you labor in vain. Builder, what's the point of this? Unless the Lord watches over the city, hey, watchman, unless God is a part of this task with you, unless he's staying up late with you, unless you invite him in, then what's the point of you actually watching this? He says, it's vanity, in vain, you're rising up early, you're staying up late, you're toiling for food to eat, for cars to drive, for houses to live in, for vacations to go on, but if God's not a part of it, what's the point? The biblical diagnosis for this problem is that too often We separate God from our career. We live in these compartmentalized lives where we have work and we have family and we have God, but they don't intersect. And God says, this is the problem. We've got to mesh together. We want to be enmeshed with God in our work in every part of our lives. So here's what we need then. If this is the problem, we need a new perspective. We need to put a set of lenses over our eyes to see work from a godly perspective. So let's put on this first lens. Let's update our perspective on work. We're gonna do this by going back to the very beginning of Scripture. When I say the very beginning, I'm talking about in the beginning. And in this, God lays out right up front the nature of work, and wouldn't you know it, we find God himself at work in the opening page of scripture. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void. We'll talk about that, that's important. Darkness was over the face of the deep, and the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters, and God said. And from this point, this is where the the narrative poem, it, it kicks in. There's 10 acts of God speaking, 10 acts of God working, and the world coming into a habitable place. But before that, we find that the world is what? It's without form and void. These words in Hebrew are tohu wabohu. Isn't that fun to say, tohu wabohu? 
guaranteed I'm pronouncing that wrong, but we'll go with it. Tohu wabohu. Uh, it, it's often translated uh, without form and void. Another translation is this is wild and waste. That there is this, there's this earth, but it's, it's like the wild west here. Another translation, I love this one, is confusion and chaos. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was confusion and it was chaos. What the author is doing is trying to get us to picture a world that is not ready for humans to thrive on it. It's an uninhabitable place, a world that is hostile from human flourishing. If you remember the movie Interstellar where they crash land on a planet there where they're looking for a new home and they find there's liquid water on this planet and they get there and realize it's only liquid water only to find out there is the tsunami of all tsunamis coming for them if they don't get out of there soon. That's my like mental picture for this hostile environment of this world. It was wild and waste. It was confusion and chaos. But what happens in Genesis 1 is God speaks 10 times and progressively, God gets to work with his words. And every time that he speaks, the world is brought into order a little bit more, a little bit more, and a little bit more. Over the course of God working, he takes a world of chaos and he brings order to it. So then he can put humanity, humans, in this world to now thrive. And that's where we find Genesis chapter two. You have God at work, he's formed the world, he's brought this chaotic world into order, and then the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. The Lord God took the man, put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. He said, Adam, I've got a home for you. It's paradise. And it's not that he gave him a lawn chair and an iced tea and said, sit back and relax, buddy. <laughs> he said, hey, Adam, I'm giving you this world, this paradise. Let's get to work. You see what's happening in chapter one and chapter two? Chapter one, it's God is the one that is bringing order to chaos. And in chapter two, God says, Adam, I've brought order to chaos. Now let me tell you about this world. <laughs> this world drifts into chaos. It drifts into dysfunction. And now I want you to do the work that I started. I want you to be the one now to work this garden, to keep it, to bring order out of chaos. God assigns Adam, and he assigns all of humanity through him to do the divine work of bringing order to chaos. What that tells us today then, and this is good news, is that any work that brings order to chaos is Eden work. Anytime we find ourselves in a situation, in a circumstance, even around our own house and our jobs, where there is a chaotic situation, no matter how large or how small, if there's a little bit of chaos, a little bit of disorder, when we bring that chaos into order, we're doing Eden work, divinely appointed. Plumbers, you all know a thing or two about chaos, right? 
Chase was just telling me on, on Friday, he oversees our production team, that his septic tank backed up. It's coming out of his yard. How many of y'all know that's chaos at the house right there? And here's what Chase does. He does the divine Eden work of opening up that septic tank and bringing order to the motor inside of it. Is it messy work? Oh yeah, big time. But it's Eden work, bringing order to chaos. Plumbers, that's what you do on a daily basis. All of you accountants, you know what this is like. People bring you receipts and actually they don't bring you enough receipts. They bring you numbers and they're jumbled and they say, I don't know what to do. People are in financial disorder. They're in financial chaos. And God has gifted you with a mind in such a way that you're able to bring order to that chaos. That's Eden work. Teachers, you have 20 plus little balls of chaos that come into your classroom at the beginning of the year and they don't know how to read. They don't know how to read well enough. They need to develop on math and somehow because of the gifting that God has given you, he works through you to bring order to those little ones so that they can thrive in their lives. Moms, you bring order to chaos on a daily basis, an hourly basis, like minute by minute moment. It's just you finding bits of disorder and chaos in your own homes and bringing it to order. You're not just putting out fires and making sure that things are tidy. You're raising up the next generation to follow God. What happens without you, mom? What happens without you, dad? We've seen the stories. We've seen the people that were abandoned and neglected and those lives are chaos, but moms, you get to shape our next generation. You're not just raising kids. You're doing Eden work, divinely appointed. Do you see the image that scripture wants us to have of our work? But this also speaks to what Eden work is not. Any work that would bring chaos into our world Convincing people to spend money that they don't have, that's chaos. Over-serving someone, knowing that they've had one too many and keeping them coming, that's creating chaos. Including unnecessary items and services built into the fine print there. After the signatures are on the paper, we talk about it, that's chaos promoting ungodly lifestyles, not properly taking care of our employees. All of that is chaos. And for the follower of Christ, that should be far from us. We're the ones that God has appointed to bring order to a place of chaos. Look at this quote by Pastor Timothy Keller. Gosh, I love this. He says, we are called to stand in for God here in the world, exercising stewardship over the rest of creation in his place as his vice regents. We share in doing the things that God has done in creation, bringing order out of chaos, creatively building a civilization out of the material of physical and human nature, caring for all that God has made. This is a major part of what we were created to be. Work has dignity because it is something that God does and because we do it in God's place as his representatives. What a wonderful clarity 
that gives us when we put that lens on. So we have the the perspective lens of what am I to do? What is my work? Well, work is bringing order to chaos, but the next lens that we wanna put on is this idea that work is worship. Work is not just work, but it's worship. One of the greatest things, thoughts to come out of the Reformation was talking about and having discussions on what is the difference between holy work and regular work? What's the difference between the work of a, of a priest and the work of a farmer? Because one has been lifted up, one is idolized, one is special, set apart, sacred and holy, and the other is just common work, peasant work. But Martin Luther would say, no, 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 what if all work can be done as worship to God? What if all work can be seen as holy? And he has this famous example, this famous quote here. Maybe you've heard it before. Luther says that God is milking the cows through the vocation of the milkmaid. (laughs) What Luther is saying is, what if there is somebody that needs nourishment? They need milk, and God wants to get milk to that person. But in order for milk to get to that person, there has to be a cow that is milked. And so when the lowliest of jobs, when the young girl who's sitting down and she milks the cow, what if God is working through her very hands to bring about the work that he wants done for that person to drink that milk? He's like, would that girl then not be doing worship? Would it not be holy work if she's doing what God already wants done? If somebody needs clothing and a tailor is stitching those clothing, would God not be working through the hands of the tailor? For the village that needs food and the farmer is attending to his plow, would God not be working through the farmer to feed those he already wants to feed? Luther would say, I think so. What if all work can be worship? What is worship? It's more than coming to church and raising hands and singing to God. Worship, by definition, means to be made low, to bring ourselves under God, to say, God, you're higher than I am. God, you're more important, more valuable than me, and I submit myself to you. That's worship. Another definition of worship is bending to something, bending around it. When we Bend our will to God's. That's Jesus' prayer. Not my will, but Father, your will be done. That's an act of worship. And so when the young girl is milking the cow, what is she doing? She is simply bending her will to what God already wants done. When we go out and we find something that is in chaos and we work to bring it in order. We're doing God's work, divine work. It's worship. We're doing what God already wants done. We're conforming to his will. That is worship to God. This is what Paul would say to his church in the book of Colossians chapter three. It says, whatever you do, work at it with all of your heart as working for the Lord. He's like, I know 
you're not really working for the Lord. I know you've got a boss, and I know he might be far from God, but hey, I want you to think that you're working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you'll receive an inheritance, not just from the master, not just the paycheck, not just your wages, but you're receiving an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. He says, it is the Lord Christ you are serving. God, yeah, I know I work at the store, but Lord, today I'm, I'm not just serving my boss. I'm not just serving an agenda. I'm not just serving the bottom line. I'm not just serving the board. Lord, I am serving you because I'm making my work today about worship towards you. Isn't that a helpful lens for us to put over as we look at our work? Work can be way more than just work. It can be a holy act towards God. But that's great information and that perspective can help us, but we still need power to actually make this happen, power to see this through. It's one thing to know it, it's another thing to put it into play. So what is that power? What is the power for work? Like all, every time we look for power, we go to the person of Jesus. We look in scripture at the gospel. And here we see Jesus. And think about his place of prominence. Think about his title, right? Like son of God, savior of the world, king of kings and lord of lords. I don't think there's any higher title than that, right? Like he occupies all of the C-suite. It's just Jesus. And Jesus, although... high and lifted up, the title above all titles, the job above all jobs. What's his goal? What's his job description? To bring salvation to mankind. And so here we have Jesus, and we see the power that he operates in. What is that power? He's constantly being asked about it. Who are you? What are you doing? What are you up to? Where do you get this authority? And he responds to the same list of questions again and again in the book of John. Let's check this out. The first one in John 5, Jesus answered them, his critics, hey, my father is working until now. And uh, yeah, I'm working too. Going back to Genesis 1, the father is working and so I'm working too. He gave him this answer, very truly I tell you, the son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees his father doing because whatever the father does, the son does also. Saying, hey guys, I'm just doing what my father has told me to do. No wonder when it was early in the morning, Jesus' disciples would go and look for him. They couldn't find him because he's off alone. He's praying. He's spending time with the father to receive instructions, to receive guidance from his father. He says, I'm just doing the work of my father. That's all I'm doing. John chapter six, they ask him again. He answers a slightly different way. He says, for I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but for the will of the one who sent me. Two chapters later in John eight, he says, and he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone. I always do the things that are pleasing for him. Here's what he's saying. Here's a common theme in this. Jesus' place of power for his ministry was his place of submission to the Father. Son of God, yes. Savior of the world, yes. King of kings and Lord of lords, yes. But what does he do? Where does he receive his power? By saying, Father, I submit to you. 
Your kingdom come. Your will be done. Father, just use me in whatever way. Guys, I'm just doing what my Father has sent me to do. Where's his place of power? It was his place of submission to the Father. And it was his submission to the Father that led him to finish his work on the cross, to take the punishment for our sins, to win justification for you and I. And for the Christian, for the Christ follower, this is where we find our power, is by looking at the cross, by remembering our crucified and yet risen Savior. It's because when we keep the cross in mind, we find we have power. What power do we have? We have power to receive the finished work of our justification. We have power to say the, the thing that no amount of striving, no amount of work, no amount of accomplishments, no amount of 80 hours a week could ever obtain to my justification for me being right with God. I could never earn it, I could never deserve it, but Jesus on the cross finished the work and it is through his finished work that I receive justification. That's power that we receive from the cross. We receive rest from trying to find identity in our work by accepting a new identity as children of God. I don't have to try to find significance and titles and accomplishments in moving up the ladder because I've already received the title from my Lord as a child of God. I belong to him. I didn't earn that. It wasn't because of my degree. It wasn't because of my accomplishments. He gave that to me freely. It's the only title that I'll carry into eternity. It doesn't matter what I accomplish here in my vocation here now. I'm gonna lose that title one day when I'm in the grave, but the title that I'll keep through eternity is a child of God. But we find rest in that. We receive the power to motivate us to work with excellence as representatives of Christ. Because so when I see the finished work of my Lord on the cross, knowing that I can bring order into this world, knowing that my work can be done out of worship, wouldn't that motivate me to work hard wouldn't that motivate me to work with excellence to represent my Lord well? Whether I'm on the tip top, the org chart, I'm just starting out, wouldn't my work be done with excellence because I'm representing my Lord and my God? This is where we draw our power. Paul writes this in Philippians. What if we took this into the workplace tomorrow? What if you took this into your homes when you're raising your kids? Whatever work you find to do this week, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Wouldn't that be great, moms, if this was like your house? <laughs> your kids not having grumbling or disputing. Wouldn't it be great if this is how it was in your workplace without grumbling and disputing? That you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and a twisted generation. 
in the midst of a crooked and twisted workforce among whom you shine as lights in this world. So I can go out and I can work and bring worship to God, but in doing so, I'm being a light to those around me. What if we took that posture this week? How do we do it? We receive power the way that Jesus did, humbling ourselves before God our Father, saying, God, not my will, but yours. God, this isn't my company. This isn't my firm. God, this isn't my practice. This is yours. Your kingdom come. This isn't my schedule, Lord. It's yours. Change it the way that you would. These aren't my employees, Lord. These are your employees. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. Wouldn't we work out of a place of power if we did that? Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we love you so much. Oh Lord, we are so thankful. We are so grateful for your cross. We are thankful for the power that we find in you. Lord, power for work to not just be monotonous, power for work to not just be a thing that we do, power for work to not consume us, but Lord, power for work to be worship unto you. Help us this week to humble ourselves before you, to get low, to bend down, to bend around you, Lord, for your kingdom come, for your will be done in Jesus' name. Would you keep your heads bowed and your eyes closed for just a moment longer, please? Maybe you're in here today and God's doing work in your heart. God's knocking at the door of your heart right now. Would you answer that call? Would you let him in? Maybe it's that you have been finding identity in your work, in your career, and you're ready to find identity in Christ. You're ready to take on that new title as a child of God. God is eager, he's loving, he is waiting for you to answer that call. If that's you and you've been business with God right now, would you just pray a prayer right there at your seat and invite God into your life? Pray a prayer something like this, Heavenly Father, I admit I can't do this life on my own, but I need you. Lord, today I, I choose to follow you. I choose to receive your finished work for my justification. I choose to receive a new child, or a title as a child of God. Today I put my hope and trust in you. Jesus, I believe you died on the cross, that you rose again, and today I make you my Lord. Thank you for saving me in Jesus' name. Amen. With your head's bowed and your eyes closed. If you just prayed that prayer, I would love to know who you are so I can celebrate you. No one's looking around. We're not gonna have you come up on stage. Nothing weird like that. I'm just gonna ask you to slip up your hand. Would you be bold? Would you be brave? Would you say, hey, Pastor Andrew, that's me. I just prayed that prayer today. I just, I mean business with God. Would you raise your hand if that's you? Praise God. Praise God. Thank you, Lord. We have a tradition around here that as you put your hand down, we're gonna put our hands together for you and tell you welcome 